Uh, we are continuing our way through the book of Malachi, and if you have missed the first two, let me briefly catch you up. We come into verse two, and, and he tells the people unashamedly, I have loved you. God offers this, this testament, this testimony of love. He comes to this people who is wayward, this people who is pursuing their own agenda, and, and he says to them, I've loved you. And what we've seen so far is that this, this people, this group of, of Israelites, they're, they're, they don't believe this love. They're working against this love and this understanding of God and who he is. And what we're going to find in this passage today is probably summarized in tough love. Now, when it, when it comes to parenting, let me simplify this and just really oversimplify this, but you can either be a, a friend to your children, or you can be a parent, right? It's really hard to discipline your children as a friend. You come in there, hey, buddy, what's up, fella? Hey, big pal. Um, hey, it's time for some discipline. That's cool, though, right? And they look at you like, no. Yeah, 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 but you and me, we're just friends, we're just pals, we're just hanging, we're just kicking it, Right? And they look at you like, what are you even saying? You're like, I don't know. I spent like 10 minutes watching Nickelodeon. Um, I thought that's how you spoke. Came in here, and now I feel ridiculed, and now it really is time for discipline. And so the difficult thing, when we see this, and, and, and what this reminds me of is a girl I met in high school whose parents bought in wholesale to winning your children by being friends to them. And so th- this girl, at 16, her parents wanted to be a friend of their daughter because they wanted to keep their daughter around, and so they let her date a 30-year-old guy. Um, they wanted to be a friend of their daughter, so they let her pursue any number of ills, any number of passions that came upon her 16-year-old heart because they said, if we're a friend to our daughter, we'll keep her. But if we try and extend discipline over our daughter, if we try and tell her what to do and how she should live her life, she will reject us and we won't have any relationship with her. So she ended up a 17-year-old mother. We recognize that. We recognize that with our kids. That there needs to be one of us in charge. It can't be them. For many of them, they can't drive yet, right? It can't be them. God has placed parents in charge of, t- of children. The Bible tells us really clearly If you hate your children, don't discipline them. If you hate your children, don't discipline them. Now, the interesting thing is, we come into this passage, and the passage sets up God is Father, and He is meeting out discipline on the Israelites. And and some of us have received discipline in our lives from the hand of God. And we look at that and we want to say, why? Why would you discipline me? Where does this come from? Why would you bring it into my life? We don't relate to God as friend. We don't relate to God as our buddy. He's not the guy we go hunting with. He's not the guy we play golf with. He's not the guy we shoot pool with. He's not the guy you hang out at the water cooler. We come to him as father. And we recognize in that relationship, he will bring discipline to our lives. And not because he wants to smite you, not because he wants to be a killjoy, not because he doesn't desire to still have you in in his life, for him to be in your life. But he does it 
because he loves you. It's the whole reason God is preparing and and describing this discipline he's going to bring on their lives is because he loves them. If you miss that, if you read through these verses and you don't have in your mind firmly that God loves them, then you walk away with this picture of this vindictive, bitter God. Man, that's just not the God of the Bible. That's not the God that Malachi presents. Let me read this passage to you. You can read along with me on the screens. And then we have quite a bit of work to do this morning to make it through this. And so I'm going to talk fast and you listen quick, okay? Starting in verse 1 of chapter 2. He says, And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So you shall know that that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, And people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you've turned aside from the way. You've caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I will make you despised and abased before all the people. Inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. He goes on, he says... Have we not all one Father? Has not God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and the abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was a witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one? with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was this one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife, but divorces her, says the Lord God, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence. So guard yourselves in spirit, and do not be faithless. Man, we have some serious ground to cover this morning. We recognize at the heart of this is this description of the covenant between God and his people. And there at the end, he uses marriage as a descriptor of something that that represents, that magnifies in some sense, what the covenant is. Now look at how he starts. 
He is continuing from chapter one this railing against the priests and their behavior. But look at what he says here. He's not automatically going in and saying, this is what I'm going to do to you. But he starts off in verse two. He says, if you will not listen. If you will not listen. there's There's a big pause there when he comes to them. It's not that he says, this is what you're doing, and bam, here I come, get ready. But he comes to them and says, this is, this is what you're doing. And if you don't hear these words that I give you, if you don't offer, if you don't receive this word of correction and come to it in the right way, this is going to be your lot. Now look, they already know what to do. God's not catching them off guard. He's not surprising them by this word. They recognize that they are violating his word. But he comes to them again. And he says, if you'll not listen, if you'll not take it to heart, this is what I'm going to do. But look, it's not just obeying. It is taking to heart and giving honor, the honor due to his name. What's he going to do if they don't follow? He's going to send this curse and he's going to curse their blessings. God's going to take everything they hold dear. He's going to take their wealth. He's going to take their crops. He's going to take their livelihood. He's going to take their position. Everything they consider to be a blessing. And each one of those, he's going to turn it over into a curse. Each one of those, he's going to upend. Each one of those, he's going to take and cause it to be an affront to them. Those things they hold dear, those things they highly treasure, if they refuse to recognize God for who he is, to give honor back to him, he's going to take those very blessings and he's going to curse them. And we recognize that this people, they love the blessings more than they love the God. This people loves the blessing. They love receiving these things more than they love the God who gives them to him. Now, this is a stark word. Verse 3, it says, Behold, I will rebuke your offspring. If they refuse to listen, if they refuse to take this to heart, if they refuse to change, God is going to carry this curse even to their offspring, to their children. He's going to curse them as well. This is the gravity of the word God is, is passing on to them. Then he has this curious expression. He says, I'm going to take and I'm going to spread the dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings. This is, this is what this is like. Now, those of you who are in here today are thinking, man, I'm really glad that I didn't bring an, an offering in here that Matt could take it, squeeze out some dung, and rub it on my face. I thought about that for a type of visual aid, but it's the, the smell aid that we're not so much able to get rid of as quickly, okay? That's why I thought about not doing that. This is what he's talking about. The people would bring in these offerings. The text has already told us that these were of the blind, of the lame, of, the, of those which were tainted, those which were unacceptable to God. The priest would take them and he would disembowel them and he would lay the boughs, he would lay all the unclean parts over on the side and this is what they were supposed to do. At the end of making the offering, you're supposed to take that, this bucket, this collection of all that which is unclean, you're supposed to take it outside the city, outside the camp, set it in a pile, and burn it. It was unclean. It couldn't be in the tent. It couldn't be near God. So this is what he says. This is the type of offering you've been bringing me is, man, it's unacceptable. It's not living up to the type of life, the sacrifice that God calls them to live. So he's going to take that very offering that they bring. 
And he's going to take that part of it that's completely unclean, that's waste, it's, it's intestines, the stuff that's inside of intestines, it's, it's waste, it's refuge. He's going to take that. He's going to smear it all over them. And it does a couple of things. I mean, that, that, on, the, on the one hand, if you walk around and you've got this nasty, decaying flesh and, and inner matter smeared all over you, people recognize that, right? And it causes in them a sense of revulsion. They see you coming, they see what you're marked with, and it causes them to back away and to cower because they don't want to get near you because of the smell, because of the pure fence of it all. What we recognize in this as well, he says, you're gonna be carried out with your offerings. If they had this on them, if they had this wiped over them, it would make them unclean. This is the weight of what God is saying here through Malachi. The way you approach me is wrong. The way you address me is incorrect. And so I'm going to take that thing that you think I should receive, that thing you think I should accept, and I'm going to use that to highlight the fact that you are making yourself unclean. I'm going to take your worthless offering. I'm going to take the part of it that's unclean. I'm going to smear it all over you. Man, God's not pleased with these folks, with the way that they're approaching him. And so he offers us in this next section the, the way that things should be, the way that things should be set up. Check this out in 4 through 7. He says, So you shall know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. God, God writes in and, and says, Look, the severity of this is necessary so that you can understand the gravity, so that you can see my covenant with Levi needs to stand. Now, the interesting thing, if you were to flip through your Old Testament and you're looking for the phrase covenant of Levi, you're not going to find it outside of Malachi. But the the things that he's describing here, we see an account in the book of Numbers that really paints this idea. And so we recognize that of the tribe of Levi, all the sons of Aaron are set up to be priests, right? And then in that group, when you get into Numbers 25, there's a guy named Phinehas, And Phinehas understood the zeal for the Lord. He understood how he is to relate to God. And so the Israelites, they're they're marrying, they're intermarrying worshipers of Baal. They've quit worshiping Yahweh God and they've started worshiping Baal. And so God tells them what has happened. And then we find that one of the men, when everybody else is gathered around and weeping and crying out, saying, God, forgive us, there's one guy He doesn't care. So he takes a foreign woman. He takes her in his tent in front of Moses, the text tells us, and everybody else, and he goes in such a way as to sleep with her. And Phineas, he sees what's happening. He recognizes what an affront it is to God, what an affront it is to his name. So he takes up a spear. In the middle of this act, he drives it through her and him, and he kills them both. You read that and you say, man, I hope Matt never catches me doing anything I'm not supposed to do. I saw that spear in his office. This could get real. But look at what Numbers 25 says about Phineas. 
says, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore, behold, I will give him a covenant of peace and it shall be to him and his descendants after him a covenant of perpetual priesthood because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. This is what God's calling us to. This is what he's calling you to. This relational understanding that we would be jealous for him. This relational understanding that that, that we would see things in our lives and the lives of our family which are displeasing to God and they would cause us this deep sense of sorrow and regret that we would say, look, I can't tolerate this in my life anymore. I refuse to have these things in my life. Like Phineas, we would put those things to death in our life. That we put these things to death so that it might be said of us that we were jealous with the jealousy of God. We were angry, angry at ourselves for doing those things which are in, a, in opposition to God and who he is. Now look at the covenant, verse five. He says, my covenant with him was one of life and peace and I gave them to him. This covenant God established to the priesthood down through Aaron is one of life and peace and he said, I gave you life, I gave you peace. So it was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. God and Aaron, and they had this relationship where he knew how to respond to God because he was one who had this reverential, this awesome fear of God. Not that he was terrified. This isn't, this isn't the type of fear where he says, I, I, I'm afraid because God is just so capricious. He's so moody that I, that I can't even relate to him, but he has this proper understanding of how high and exalted God is and how utterly dependent he is upon God. And it's in that relationship that this sense of reverential fear describes his relationship. He says, he stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth and no wrong was found in his lips. How far they have come from the line of Aaron. They're accepting those things which are utterly worthless. But he says, this covenant I've got with Levi, it was such that true instruction was in his mouth and no wrong was found on his lips. And the result of that is he turned many from iniquity. He goes on, he says, the lips of the priest should guard knowledge. The lips of the priest should guard knowledge. Now, when we understand this in our, in our context and the, the way that we should understand this, you and I should be those who guard the knowledge of God. Man, we should be those who are, are living in accordance with the scripture. We should be those who are instructing others. And when, you're, when your friends and your family have issues, they should come to you, not because they know you as the sagest and the wisest or the richest, but they should come to you because the place you draw wisdom from is the word. Man, they should come to you for help. They should come to you for insight because the person from whom you draw instruction from is God. We don't give just lessons for how that people can have better marriages, how they can raise better and healthier children. We give lessons that we derive from the text. We give lessons that we derive from his word. 
So people should, and, should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is a messenger of the Lord of hosts. I gotta tell you, I read this, and it prompts in my mind Hebrews 13, 17, which is, is a word to anybody who ever wants to go into ministry. There's this caution. It says, obey your leaders and submit to them. What well, sounds good for me so far? It says, for they're keeping watch over your souls. This sounds a little bit more intense. As those who have to give an account. There's a weight to the office of following God. There's a weight to it. Now for anyone who would seek to pastor, to shepherd, there's this word that you can held to a higher account. So man, it's with great sadness that we see minister after minister fail. Whether addiction to pornography, addiction to money, they made an idol of themselves. They said, I cannot fall. I'm too successful to fall. Some of the most successful, some of the most well-known, some of the most well-liked, some of the men with the greatest following fall, and they fall hard. And each and every one of them will have to give an account. And that's exactly what God is doing to the Levites in this passage. He's calling them to account. He says, look, this is how it should be. You should have true instruction. You should give true words. People should come to you and say, how should I live life? And you tell them, this is how it should be. This is how you honor God. This is how you follow him. This is how he brings blessings into your life. But in reality, this is how it is. He says, verse eight, but you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. In essence, we see if this is the way you're to go to follow God, they turn and they walk the opposite direction. He said, what your word should do is make dead flesh alive. What your word should do is bring lost into the light. What your word should do is to bring men and women from darkness to light. Help them move from being lost to being found. But in reality, you're steering them away. You're steering them in the wrong direction. You're causing people to stumble. He says, you've corrupted, you've made worthless, you've violated the covenant of Levi. He says, so I will make you despised and abased before all the people. You'll recognize that in our first two weeks that this is the same idea he says, you've despised the name of the Lord. You have despised his table. And this is what he says to them. Those things that you did to me, I will turn and do them back to you. I will make you despised and abased. And that's just this priesthood that's meant to represent the people of God. It's meant to represent these, these intercessors for the rest of the tribes. This priesthood, everybody else would look at them and recognize God's Blessings being removed from them, God's judgment being poured out on them. I said, that's what's gonna happen. That's what's gonna happen to you if you don't turn. He says, that's what's gonna happen to you before all the people inasmuch as you do not keep my ways but show partiality in your instruction. You see, they have one set of balances 
for those people that, that brought benefit to their life and they had a whole nother set for those people that were more troublesome. They have one set of way of operating for those that could benefit them and a whole separate way of operating for those that could bring them no benefit. Now look at how he describes this. Getting into verse 10. He's trying to show them the ramifications for all the things they've done. The, the, the breadth of these things. He says, have we not all one father? If he stops there, there leaves some sense of ambiguity. Is he talking about Abraham? Is he talking about Jacob? If he's talking about just the priest, is he talking about Aaron? Is he talking all the way back to Levi? But no, in fact, we find that he is talking about God. He says, not, has not one God created us? He's making this argument. He's saying, look, look at how bonded together we are. We have one father, it is God. We have one creator, it is God. And he asks this question based upon that. He says, why then are we faithless to one another? Man, if we are children of God, if we are those who are a part of his bride, if, if this is who we are, then why do we hate one another? But this is the same thing Paul goes through in Philippians. When he said over and over and over again, stand together, be unified together. Not over this understanding of, that, that you're part of this one isolated church. But with this understanding, we are unified for the sake of the gospel under the blood of Jesus Christ. In Philippians, he said it this way. He says, look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Here, he says, why are you acting faithless to those who are of the same lineage, the same line as you? And inasmuch as you do this, you're profaning the covenant of our fathers. Do you see that? That's a hard word for us. That's a hard word. If you're a member of a church that is any larger probably than you, right? You catch that? If you go to church with other people, you're going to argue with them. I don't care if it's just you and your wife. You stay home and you have home church. You're going to argue. And if you don't believe she's arguing with you, you should spend more time with her. Um, she should probably ask if you can read her journal. Because she is arguing with you. Uh, wife, if you don't think he's arguing with you, uh, put a little bug in his car while he's driving to work because he is rehearsing those things that he wants to say to you. Um, and it's terrifying everybody he commutes with. When we have animosity, when we have difficulties with those in the body, it fractures us. I don't care if, if, it's, if it's Dale and I that don't get along. It's not just between Dale and I. It, it, it makes its way out from there. It fractures the body. You can be Joe Pewsitter. You can be on this side and this is the only place you've ever sat and somebody else can sit on this side. And you guys have animosity. You have difficulty between the two of you and you say, it's okay, I sit on the right. She sits on the left. He sits on the left. I never have to see them. I go in this entrance. They go in that entrance. I park in the Alliance parking lot. They park on the east side of the building. Matt, it's really okay, friend. It's not okay. Your relationship, your fracture in your relationship, it doesn't happen in a vacuum. It causes damage to the body. They had lost this sense of understanding that they were community bonded together 
and they were operating as selfish individuals. Man, that is absolutely our temptation. That is absolutely our bend to think that those things that we do have no impact on those around us. That our attendance, that our involvement has no impact on those around us. But he calls us to this understanding that we are to be intimately involved with one another. And we must work through those differences and those difficulties. Continuing, he says, Judah has been faithless, verse 11, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. An abomination has been presented, but what is it? He says, Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves. Now, this is what Judah did. He was surrounded by a group of people that did not worship God. And so some of the men went out and they found foreign brides, I'm sure very beautiful, very lovely, and they married them. They united themselves with those who were opposed to God. Now, there is strict instruction given for who they are to marry and who they're not to marry. Now, this isn't any type of interracial or any inter-ethnic marriage that he's talking about. What he's talking about is, is believers seeking out for the purpose of marriage unbelievers. They're seeking out for the purpose of that. And he said, when, when you do that, when you enter into that relationship... We recognize through Solomon and through others that, that it breaks down. Now, this was happening on a mass scale. They had sought out to do that, and inasmuch as they did that, you see, when they commit this sin, they're sinning against God. And it says, you profane his name. You profane the sanctuary of the Lord. And any man who does this, any man who does this, hmm, He's going to cut off the descendants of that man. Essentially, he's going to be removed from this people. And why is he doing that? You see, he's working for the protection of his name. He's working for the, for the furtherance of this people. He says, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this. He's doing it because he's concerned about the purity of the name, the purity of his people. He doesn't want this person who worships a false god coming in and infiltrating the body. But look, look how mis, misled these people were. They're engaging in this, and they're apparently still bringing offerings. The second half of verse 12, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. It wasn't just what they had done is that they seemed to think that they could live however they want, approach God in whatever way they want, and that he would simply be satisfied, that he would be pleased with their efforts and with their behavior. They're sorely, sorely mistaken. Verse 13, he says, the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Now this is interesting. The people go in and they're calling out, they're praying to God and saying, God, won't you, won't you bless me? Won't you give me these things? I'm, I'm laying this offering, I'm laying this, this, this thing at your feet. 
and, and, and they're flooding his altar with tears. They're crying, and all of these things are coming out. And God says, stop it. Stop crying. Stop asking for this stuff. It's not going to happen. You see, they think the blessing of God is brought about through a display of emotion instead of an act of contrition. They refuse to recognize the thing that they've done as an affront to God. And they think that he can be won over by a multitude of tears. And how many of us, when we, when we look at those things that we do wrong, we look at those sins, somebody brings it to light. You, you watch an especially moving sermon on TV, on the radio, you go to an evangelistic crusade, and you, you hear this thing and you know it's inside of you, and you're moved to tears. You're weeping, you're crying out. But it doesn't change anything. How many of us have set down the path of rededication over and over and over again? If certificates were given for rededication, your wall could be wallpapered in them. And you wonder, why do I keep going back to this same thing? Why do I keep going back to the same sin? Because you never truly move past it. You're saddened over it. But you never really realize the gravity, the damage that your sin does between you and your relationship with God. God needs to call us all to a deeper understanding of the gravity of our sin, the gravity of our behavior just as he's calling them. They're aloof. They don't get it. Verse 14, they even respond, why, why does he not? Why doesn't God accept this? Why doesn't God receive our offering? Man, I, I'm bringing this thing. I do this stuff. For us, we could say, I give this money or I give of this time. Surely God will bless me, will bless my life. Why does he not? We find that in the case of these people, there's a deeper problem. He says, because the Lord was a witness between you and the wife of your youth, what we recognize in here is that God is the one who establishes the covenant of marriage. He says, it's this wife of your youth that you've been faithless with. Now, people take this in a number of ways. Some take it and say, well, what happened was is, you know, they married this hot young thing, and when she grew up, she was this, this old hag. They married this hot young thing and they grew up and she was one that they liked it when she wore lots of sackcloth, right? When she's young, they want tight-fitting clothes. When she's old, they prefer the moo-moo and her side of the house. And he said, you despise the wife of your youth. And so that's one way that people look at this. Another group of people look at it and they tie it to the passage that came before and say the gravity of what's going on is that these people married women inside of Israel. They married righteous women who loved God, but then they left them. They left them and they married pagan women. So we recognize that this, this relationship, this marriage relationship that they're abandoning, that they're treating as worthless, is a reflection of their view of God. It's a reflection of your view of God. Remember that he says the Lord was a witness between you and the wife of your youth. She is to be your companion and your wife by covenant. Going on in verse 15, he says, did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? 
God brought them together. God stood in their midst and brought them together. In the New Testament, we read there to be one flesh. They're supposed to forsake all others. But for whatever reason, they abandoned that. For whatever flippant reason, they dismissed that. And they kick it to the side. They kick this wife of their youth to the side because they see something greater. They see something they think is better. Now, most of you are no stranger to divorce. Maybe some of you have been divorced, been divorced and remarried. Maybe you're in a marriage right now and you're thinking about divorce. The ESV doesn't translate it this, but a lot of translations do. When you get into 2.16, they say, God hates divorce. And you hear that and you struggle with it and you think, God hates me. That's not what it says. It's not the situation he's describing. It's simply not what it says. The reason he uses marriage is because marriage is a reflection of the covenant between God and his bride. We see it used in the Old Testament. We see it used in the New Testament. Does God hate divorce? Does he dislike divorce? Absolutely. You say, but Matt, I thought, I thought you know, we could get divorced. You go to Matthew 19, 8, and Jesus says, Moses allowed divorce. Why? Because of the hardness of people's hearts. It wasn't God's intention and it wasn't his desire. But he recognized that there were times, and the New Testament gives examples of, of, of reasons why people might get divorced. See, they weren't considering that. They didn't care about that. They were just dismissing their wives to marry another, and in their case, to marry a pagan woman. That's how little they considered their relationship with God. That's how little they considered it. Their understanding, their reflection of their relationship with God is met out in their relationship with their spouse. You come into Ephesians, and we get this radical picture of a way a husband is supposed to love his wife. And this picture finds Jesus at the center of it. You're supposed to love them sacrificially. How did Jesus love the church? He gave his life over for her. It's not happening here. Sadly, that's not happening in many of our homes. Too many of our homes. Find husbands that, that, that love the idea that the wife should submit. But when it comes to this idea that the husband should love his wife sacrificially, I say, well, they, they clearly weren't talking about my wife. When it comes to this idea that, that they should give themselves up for her, and they say, not this woman. In fact, I would give this woman up to someone else. See, one of the places we need to start 
is, is, is in our understanding of marriage. Because the things that happen in our marriage are a reflection of those things happening in our heart towards God. Let me say it another way. The way that you think about God in your heart is going to come out in your marriage. You don't believe me? Ask your spouse. If true instruction dwells in you, if his word dwells in your heart, if your marriage is centered on the word because your life is centered on the word, then blessings will be found in your marriage. Because God will be in your marriage. But if his word's not in your heart, his word won't be in your marriage. Your marriage will be an empty shell. And it's not representing any covenant between God and the church. It's just representing a day that you guys spent an afternoon together and told a bunch of people you loved each other. Marriage is hard work. And the dedication we give to preserving marriage, to giving ourselves to the the strength and security of marriage, is a representation of our submission to God and us giving ourselves to him. And that's why he uses this. That's why he uses this as as an explanation, as a metaphor for the covenant. Now look here in verse 16. He says, For the man who does not love his wife that divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, he covers his garment with violence. To cover a woman with a garment was, was an example of bringing her into marriage. Remember that, that Ruth asked Boaz to cover her. He was asking her, or she was asking him to marry her. And he says, when you, when you do this, when you dismiss your spouse in such a flippant manner, when you pursue these pagan women, what you're doing is covering your garment with violence. You're doing damage to the covenant. So he offers this word of summary. He says, so guard your hearts, guard yourselves in your spirit, and do not be faithless. In Ezekiel, God gives us a beautiful picture of what this covenant looks like. Ezekiel 16, eight through 14, God speaking of Israel. He says, when I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you're at the age of, for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness and made a vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God. And you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put a ring in your nose and earrings in your ear and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. It says you grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. Speaking of his people, he says, and your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty. Who made her beautiful? God did. God came to this people who was not a people. He anointed her. He set her aside. 
He set her out to be beautiful. He says, your renown went out forth among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through the splendor that I have bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. Our marriages should be a beautiful thing. They should reflect the love of God. They absolutely should. God gives us this picture here in Ezekiel of how he had this covenant with his people, of how he had this covenant with them, and he called them in, and he made them a people, and he made them beautiful, and friend, he did the same thing with you. The Bible tells us that we were enemies of God, that we were at enmity with God. But he came in and he washed you and he made you clean. He plunged you deep into his blood and he took away all of the the gross misdeeds of your life. And he calls you to live in this relationship with him. To live as one who has been redeemed, one who has been changed, one who has been transformed, one who has been washed and made clean and made whole. But for many of us, what we want to do is serve ourselves. But God comes into this and says, you cannot operate, you cannot relate to me as friend, you must relate to me as father. And he calls us into that relationship. And it's in that relationship that we see Jesus in Hebrews 7, 22 through 28. He says this, Jesus, the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. These priests would die. You and I will die. But speaking of Jesus, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. How far does God save you? To the uttermost. He doesn't just save you to the other side of being lost. He saves you into eternity. He saves you forevermore. He saves you to the uttermost. But who? It is those who draw near to God through him, who have come to know God through Christ, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have a high priest, holy, innocent, unrestrained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Amen. You and I are able to have a relationship with God, not because we brought our offerings, not because we brought our money and our sacrifices into the church, but we're able to have a a relationship with God because he has made us beautiful through the sacrifice of his son. And what you see over and over again in Malachi is this sad state of affairs for the priesthood the sad state of affairs that they have forgotten their true love, they've forgotten the one that has redeemed them, that has called them. And what we see is that Jesus has stepped in and he is the perfect high priest. That he doesn't stand all day and offer sacrifices first for himself, then for the people, but he offered one sacrifice for all time and sat down at the right hand of the Father on high. And that is where he sits today, still interceding on our behalf. 
Friends, if God has called you, if he has saved you, then live in that reality. If you fall, if you fail, he is faithful and just and righteous and he will forgive you. Is there a consequence for sin? Absolutely. But God calls us into relationship with him and he is the one who preserves it. He is the one who upholds it and he is the one who maintains it. Let me pray for us.